unless it's very, very out of the ordinary, your expectation is you just make it happen because you can't be in the middle of war and have someone turn around and look at you and say, oh, what am I supposed to do, boss? Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 152. Today, we're going to hear what the United States Navy can teach you about Industry 4.0. Our guest this week is Marty Groover, an operational technology expert, a partner at C5MI, and the author of Speed of Advance, How the U.S. Navy's Convergence of People, Process, and Technology Can Help Your Business. So, here are three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we'll get some background on Marty's Navy days and what he learned from those experiences. Second, we'll hear about his transition to civilian life and entry into the manufacturing world, where, let's just say things didn't necessarily operate the way they did in the Navy. Finally, Marty will share why military experience can be such a great path into the industrial world and some of the things that he has in common with one of the world's other famous individuals named Marty. As always, if you want to learn more, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 152. And if you enjoy this episode, if you're enjoying this show, hey, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or on iTunes. With that, it's time to get into today's conversation. Let's meet up with Marty Groover. Marty, I feel like the question I'm about to ask you is a question I would actually ask you if we were having a drink with one another, but your book is titled Speed of Advance, but I think we need to know, our audience needs to know, what what is speed of advance in general, in Navy terms? Explain it as if we're having a beverage with one another. Yeah, that's a great question. So as a surface warfare officer on a bridge of a ship, Every minute of every day, we're getting measured on this measurement called speed of advance. And really, all it is in simplest terms is I've got a plan, and where am I actually at in that plan? And how do I maintain my speed to be as efficient as possible? Because some days I got to make up speed, right? I got to gain speed so I can slow down to do things like underway replenishment, getting fuel at sea, or I've got engineering drills I got to do. But ideally, we want to stay in the most efficient speed, which is somewhere between 12 and 15 knots, depending on the ship. So that if we have to go fast, we can. But it's all about measuring where you're at and how you're doing on that plan every minute of the day. And a captain comes on the bridge. What's the SOA? He knows what his plan is for that day, and he puts it in his in his orders. So when you, how does that translate to manufacturing? What's your actual versus plan? I'm supposed to build this much today. What did I build? And if I didn't, why didn't I get there? You know, and it and it just hit me. You know, when I got into manufacturing, wow, speed of advance was a very uh, applicable measurement KPI. And kind of everything else flows to it because you you can't be wasteful at sea because there's not a a 7-Eleven or you know a Walmart around the corner where you stop. So you measure everything. The number of eggs you eat, it's amazing. You know how much you measure, but SOA is really an important um, piece for a ship. Well, I certainly see the parallels between SOA and manufacturing. I see why it would be the title of your book, but but there's more to it. And we're going to start by getting a little bit on your background. And folks that that read the book 
can get some of these details as well. But you were working on some pretty advanced equipment back in the mid 80s. Can you tell us a bit about what you were doing in the context of your naval responsibilities? Yeah, absolutely. So great, great story. You know, blessed to serve in the Navy. Started out as an E1, went through very technical two years of electronics, electricity, radar, all that. And my first weapon system that I worked on that I was responsible for was really the first fully condition-based modern live system that was there to defend the ship. Last ditch missile defense, closing weapon system. And that system had multiple, multiple pieces to it, hydraulics, it had air conditioning, it had everything a self-contained weapon system needed, and it had a fully based or fully indexed self-monitoring system that constantly measured it. And if something didn't work, it, it, it would stop. It was the first stop to fix, if you're familiar with that term, you know, kind of the Toyota way, stop to fix. Well, you had to stop to fix this thing because it has to work every time. So that kind of mentality and learning to work in a system like that and think system-wide, not just a small component, really affected, you know, the way I thought about things and the way I learned and troubleshooting it, solving problems and making sure that system was ready to serve 100% of the time. Because you never want to go to the captain and say, I don't know why it didn't shoot, sir. You know, and, and your fellow people on the ship are not going to be very happy with you when you're in that lifeboat with them. And your system, your only job was to protect the ship and it didn't work. So it's a it was a high stress job for sure. Yeah. And I'm curious because this was pretty good technology back in the mid 80s and you had a great career in the Navy. But after the Navy, you went to Caterpillar and you had this vision in your mind of what one of the best equipment manufacturers in the world was going to look like probably what you thought manufacturing was going to look like in general. I don't want to steal your thunder though. Tell us, tell us the story, what it was like walking in and seeing the operation for the first time. Yeah. So you can imagine I was in the world's best Navy, you know, very successful career, got out as an officer after 21 years. And I, I, I got, you know, selected, lucky enough, hired by Caterpillar, iconic manufacturer, been around over, you know, hundred years, and I'm thinking, wow, they're going to be so much more advanced than the Navy because you always feel like the military is behind and, you know, the commercial world is so far ahead. And I went from using an SAP system to do manufacturing, remanufacturing in a, a support facility was my last job as a repair officer for combat systems. And now I go in to be a manufacturer engineer. I'm back to green screens. I'm back to an old cobalt system. No, it worked well, but wow. And I, you can't see anything live. Everything is is dead to you where... When I was in the Navy, my last cruise on a John F. Kennedy, I could actually see our our airplanes over Fallujah supporting the Marines live. I've never seen that before, but that's what we're used to. And now you go into manufacturing. The only way for me to know what's going on in shop floor is I got to go down and walk around. So it was an eye-opening experience, although they're, don't get me wrong, Caterpillar's top, top-tier manufacturer quality, the products that they make, but just that support to that manufacturing team and the operations team just just hadn't evolved yet. Yeah. So tell us how you leveraged that military experience to start taking a disciplined approach to how you were going to make changes, improve the process, all of that. So I was lucky enough to be selected. I was a Six Sigma black belt and I got selected for this project on one of our assembly lines to implement a new digital and on system. So we used, um, you know, industrial computers, Alan Bradley industrial computers. But what we said was, hey, if we could get that data down in the shop floor, make it live and see the status of 
there was six different stations and we use that as a pilot but then have the operators call for help when they need it be able to see the parts they're waiting for that are, are late but also see it in a web page so now i could see it on my phone on my computer if i'm working someplace and i could escalate alerts if that line's been down for so many minutes escalate go help them and it was really profound we called it a common operational picture because eventually we replicated in in our east peoria facility where we build the large track type tractors to all the assembly lines and imagine at that time this was uh, 2008, right around there, we could look on one web page and see every assembly line plus all the material um, availability shortages in one web page and collect the analytics on it. Just hadn't happened before. And we were implementing a uh, Caterpillar production system, much like Toyota production uh, system. And it, it was really profound to start seeing those insights live and then have the operators actually help you solve the problems because if you can make their life better what's in it for them hey put put the root cause codes why are we missing it what's the quality defects and then we did the, you know the analytics on it it was really a game changer i like that you mentioned that this was in 2008 because the things you're talking about while this term probably wasn't even around then as far as i know i'm curious when you started thinking about or hearing the term industry 4.0 uh, because you're doing a lot of the things, root cause analysis, looking at the data, all the things that Industry 4.0 allows people to do. But you were doing it before then. So uh, I'm curious, when did you start hearing that term and how did that help evolve your worldview around manufacturing? So, again, like I said, I was lucky enough to be Marty McFly. I saw the future before you know, I had the sports almanac. And when I was given a role as a factory manager, um, well, I was – operations and maintenance first, but then I was factory manager four days before go live with SAP. Now I'd use that in the Navy and I was very excited because I knew the live data that you could get out of the system would really change things. And we needed to fix quality, velocity, safety, all those things using the system. So once we put that core system in, then we started adding to it. We put in a OEE monitor, you know, overall equipment effectiveness monitor live. We put in um, different maintenance condition-based monitors so that we knew we were having failures. We put in cameras that would measure our, our quenching and heat treating so that if something went out of whack, it would stop it before we created a bunch of scrap and really thought about the business problems we needed to solve. Then we picked, you know, how we were going to solve them using the SAP system. So, you know, the funny thing is I complained about uh, SAP deployments enough as a factory manager saying we could do better. And they put me in charge of all SAP deployments for Caterpillar. And that's where I got engaged. Uh, SAP was very interested in leveraging my manufacturing functional knowledge to help with their products. And that's where I really went over to Germany and started learning about Industry 4.0, ISA 95, the whole ITOT integration, how, you know, how are we going to connect those systems to create that common operational picture. So it's right around 2013, 14, maybe, when, you know, after we were very successful in the factory, probably one of the best go lives and really turned everything around inside the factory using live data. So it's been about 10 years since then. So you've gotten a lot of experience with Industry 4.0 during that time frame. And we talked a little bit about this um, before the interview. It's been 18 months since you came out with the book. I'm curious how, before we get there, let me ask this. How have you seen adoption around Industry 4.0 evolve from your perspective from that 2014 period to the time period when you wrote the book. Let's start there and we'll get to part two in a second. 
Yeah, as you can imagine, I mean, if you've been in this realm at all, there's a lot of buzzword bingo going on with digital transfer ta- transformation, industry 4.0. What is that? Nobody really knows what that means. What does that mean? You know, and so when it first started, it was a lot of conceptual things. And then we just started diving in, building a little chunk here, building a little chunk there. And we, we found a factory that was one of our newest factories. And it was struggling with SAP. And we went in there, SAP went in and partnered with us. And we turned that factory around, putting in real-time location tracking, predictive maintenance, you know, a lot of advanced analytics, looking at the live um, manufacturing outcomes, speed of advance, actual versus, just something as simple as actual versus plan on an assembly line or piece parts made today on a, uh, you know, robotic self. I'm supposed to make 20, you know, frames today and I only make, 18. Well, that's two in the bucket that I've got to catch up. So just seeing it and then being able to find root causes and then solving those root causes, the flywheel started spinning. Like this really is, could be a real thing, not just a, you know, pilot project or, or some, something science experiment. You could really get it to full production instead of just a proof of concept. Well, the, the next question is what I'm really interested to ask is how have you seen Industry 4.0 evolve over the past 18 months since you've written the book? Because I, I listened to one of your podcasts that you did shortly after it came out, but you know we're, we're 18 months ahead of there now. I'm curious, have you seen things change? And if so, how have they changed? Yeah, I think, well, a couple things, right? Um, it's, still a, it's still pretty a nascent um, industry, but people are starting to see for supply chain resilience and agility, they have to have some of these capabilities. And I think what we were very nervous during COVID, we thought we were gonna probably fold the tent being a you know brand new business and only in business for a couple of years. And then this hits where like, nobody's gonna do anything. But I think what happened was, is people didn't wanna necessarily go into manufacturing anymore. Everybody wanted to work remote. So it's driving adoption a lot more since I wrote the book and I think, you know, people are starting to really try to experiment with the technology and it, it's all around. I mean, Google, Azure, every one of the big, um, you know, hyperscalers have their technologies and depending on where you're at in the food chain, people are either using SAP, you know, or they're using some sort of tool out there because they have to, because, you know, need, you know, drives innovation and there's definitely a need for it out there. We just can't get enough manufacturing people. And it's not, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, AI and industry 4.0, it's just going to replace people. It would never will because it's it's too hard to do, but it can make them more productive and it can help them. And you can codify all your knowledge into these processes digitally where you know your failure modes, you know what you're looking for. When you see it, you alert somebody and say, go do this and you can solve this problem much quicker than not even seeing it or having to go through a bunch of spreadsheets to try to figure out what those problems are. And I think that's really what we're starting to see is people are starting to understand. Plus, a lot of the boomers during uh, COVID decided, hey, time to hang up, you know, the spurs and it time to retire. So it kind of created a, a gap. And what I'm seeing is the much younger digital native generations that always had a cell phone in their hand or, or very used to the data are now getting in those positions going, I don't even want to run the business unless I have it. So I think that's the other part of it that's going to accelerate the adoption um, of these technologies because they're comfortable with them. Yeah. So so based on that answer and everything you said, this is a fun one. If you were to add one more chapter 
to speed of advance today? What would that chapter be about? Um, whether it's more information on the state of manufacturing, a call to action, what might that next chapter be? Well, I'm really thinking about my next book is really explaining what a common operational picture is so that the term is not a buzzword, but it has meaning and why it's so important to to drive. What I found was in my factories, if I could, ex- if people could understand what they needed to do, how they needed to do it, and they had the tools there, I'm so much better if I can drive the business down the lowest level. Why does the undercover you know, boss always go down the lower level to see what's really going on in the business? The key thing is, is comfort with digital tools and how it can really drive the difference in your business. Again, if you can get it to the lower level and the people at your lowest level know exactly what to do, know what to do when it doesn't go happy path, your business is going to run 10 times better and the engagement is so much higher. And that's what people are really looking for. What, you know, 3X, 3Y, if you believe people want to do a good job or they don't, I believe they do. And I think that when you have the clarity of the business, you provide them the tools, they can see it. And we're seeing it with certain customers. They're loving it because now they know, oh, that's what you want me to do. Great. Now I know what to do when it doesn't go right. I don't have to go up to, you know, find a leader to do this. It just really drives more and sort of like what we had in the Navy where, you were you were empowered to do things without being told. And I think if you do this right, um, that command by negation is a term I use in the book. What does that really mean? It means I already have a set of responses. I already have a set of roles, what they need to do, how they need to do it. And unless it's very, very out of the ordinary, your expectation is you just make it happen because you can't be in the middle of war and have someone turn around and look at you and say, Oh, what am I supposed to do, boss? If that's happening, we're failing, right? So I think that's the other part. It democratizes the process in the business. And everybody has a very important role. No role, no one role is more important than the other. And management then can do what they should be doing, which is developing people, bringing the talent up, driving the next level, and then people are, are executing the processes. This brings up a question more on not on industry 4.0, but your military background in general and its application to the manufacturing industry. One of the things you mentioned is, you know, when, when you're on the battlefield, you're not asking, hey, boss, what should I do? You're just executing. And you talk about what it was like walking into Caterpillar the first time where you were able to reflect on your experience and make a pretty quick impact, all things considered. And to preface this, I've seen a lot of great new programs like Rockwell Automation does the Academy of Advanced Manufacturing, where they train up military veterans in advanced manufacturing jobs. But gosh, why aren't why aren't we leveraging this subset of the population more when it just seems like such a natural one to one fit going from one to the other? Yeah, fortunate for me is, um, you know, I, I was a system engineer. I was responsible for the whole Aegis weapon system. So I think systems of systems, that's what I was trained to do. I have to make them all work together. I had 280 pieces of software on that Aegis cruiser that all had to work together. Then I was responsible for a whole strike group, making sure all the comms, the links, radars, everything worked together in unison, system of systems to to drive you know that outcome, which was air warfare or surface warfare, whatever you're doing. So that translation was easy when I got the Caterpillar. And then learning an aircraft carrier in a short period of time, anytime you get on a new ship, you have to learn all the systems, how to do everything. It made it easy for me to go into manufacturing which I did a little bit of when I left uh, the Navy in, in a repair facility. And um, so it was a natural transition. But the best part was I went in the UAW environment. Everybody said, oh, you're going to hate UAW. 
And to me, Caterpillar felt just like going in the military. I, wore, I just wore a uniform every day. We wore, you know, kind of our work clothes with our cat on it. And we went to quarters and followed orders. And to me, it was an easy transition. But I think for the military people these days, I think they need some help translating what's going on in the business compared and being able to make it easier to understand this is what it meant here. This is what it meant there. And I've, I have helped some military people transition. So they understand they feel comfortable that their knowledge is applicable uh, to where they're going. So, I mean, it's something that the book should help with too, for people to realize that, you know, if you know, do you know, Jocko Willink, um, the I guy do. That wrote dream ownership, yeah. he, he kind of was a guide for me. I, we had him come out to cat and speak before I got out of Caterpillar and I read his book and I said, well, he's doing it with combat operations and, and, you know, SEAL stuff. But I said, it's the same thing in manufacturing and what we're doing. So I kind of didn't steal his thunder, but I kind of leveraged that vignette sort of, uh, you know, process and writing the book. So, yeah, another another great book. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. build control panels do you want to reduce your overall project time by 59 percent then you should check out eplan because that's exactly what automated drive systems ads did when they partnered up with them eplan is helping companies like ads create standardized processes for more efficient engineering that's because eplan is more than your typical cad software and is ideal for creating electrical schematics and panel layouts when ads needed to become a leaner operation ePlan standardized their creation of electrical schematics and panel layouts, and the data from ePlan fed directly back to equipment that automates both panel wiring and enclosure modification. It even creates 3D digital twins of panels so you can visualize the configuration and design before building the real thing. So, if you're building panels and you too are trying to run lean while reducing your design and build times like ADS did, then go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ePlan to learn more. And while you're at it, don't miss episode 132, featuring our full-length interview with their well-traveled solutions architect, Sean Mulherin. He's got some good stories, but for now, it's time to get back to today's episode. I, I, I want to reference something you mentioned before we hit record. And you mentioned in when it comes to manufacturing and maybe the industry in general and, and everything it, it helps with in our country are like, we're in trouble right now. Like we need more people implementing industry 4.0, getting in this industry, all of the above, right? Dive into that a bit about that more. I just want to talk about the criticality of the situation and then we can leave our audience with some good actions as well to take the lessons you're providing and putting them into action. Yep. I think, you know, everybody's experienced during COVID if it didn't provide a wake up call, it sure should have going to stores and seeing things not in stores, not in being able to get, you know, what we're used to getting showed kind of the underbelly of our supply chains. And when they're long and they go from continent to continent and they have to go through a port of entry and they have to be offloaded. I mean, I think we found a perfect example was Yamaha actually couldn't get in a port, couldn't get their motors over here for boats. Everybody wanted a boat. They actually drove the boat back to Japan and put all the engines on an airplane to get it over here. That just shows you that these supply chains are not resilient. And if we're going to be secure in this world, um, you know, the military, we're working with the Defense Logistics Agency, which is the biggest procurement and warehousing arm in the military. 
And one of the things that we're starting to hear buzzwords about is contested logistics. Well, the civilian supply chain, the defense industrial base, they're synonymous. They do the same thing, right? They rely on these long supply chains. So in order for us to be better and distribute the manufacturing, instead of having these monolithic manufacturing hubs, we're going to have to go to more of a distributed model, such as like the Amazon distributed model and manufacturing going forward. You're going to have these smaller factories that are automated, but connected. And then they're going to match up with the logistics hub because when your supply chain shorter, there's less impacts to it and it allows you to rapidly, you know, be agile and, and make those changes that you need quickly where long, you know, 60, 70 day supply chains that we've had in the past, the just in time idea, very vulnerable, very vulnerable. And, and, you know, just looking at the world the way it is today, I don't think it takes a rocket science to understand, you know, scientists to understand that we're probably not as secure as we think we are. Yeah. And, and I, the nice thing about our audience is it's an audience that understands, hey, automation industry 4.0, they're not taking jobs. It's an audience that understands, yes, manufacturing and supply chain is very connected to national security. So you're preaching to the choir and in a positive way on this. Uh, and, uh, what would be the call to action around everything we've talked about today? Or just like, I'm curious, you talked about actual versus planned in speed of advance. It brings up the question, how many manufacturers are even getting the basics right or focusing on the right big picture versus getting caught up in the buzzwords, the day-to-day, the emergencies, all that other stuff? What do you see in your work, the people you've talked to? I'm curious on your perspective here. Yeah, I want to add one more point if I can, then I'll hit that. The other thing that we're experiencing right now, and it's very similar to the late 70s when inflation was going, kind of going through the roof and you know, sometimes people think a personality can come in office, make a couple changes and steer our economy and make the difference. It really was the PC that made the difference. And what happened? We got so much more productivity because of PC computers, software, that evolution. For 30 straight years, we had improved productivity that allowed us to overcome that inflation because things got cheaper because and got made better if you think about it think about the car well you probably don't know but <laughs> when we first bought cars if they went 60 70,000 miles you're happy right i mean now you're like they're just getting broke in they last you know a long time but that's important because right now where we're at industry 4.0 can make a difference we've actually been going down um since 2012 somewhere in there if you look at the bureau of labor statistics about multi-factor productivity has been going down why we have too much data too many things. It's actually making us less productive. So to that point, you know, we really have got to think about how do we use the technology that's there that that can give us live data to drive better solutions. So something as simple as did I make what I did, was supposed to make today it can be condition based monitor is what I call it. And that's where the technology either through live analytics without any human being involved or human has to be engaged to give you the root cause because it's not smart enough yet to know, hey, because of this, you failed. This is what you need to do to fix it. But you need to build that foundation. So you need a digital core that's very capable. The digital core, you have to use it right, whether it's ERP system, whatever, it has to be used well. That's where most of your data is and that's where you're making money. Then as you integrate, provide visibility, then you can get adaptability. Once you have that play, it's a maturity model that goes up. Now you can get predictable and then you can really achieve the goals of Industry 4.0, which is full autonomy. 
but you can't get there in one step, half step. It, it takes a, a very methodical strategy of how to converge people, process, and technology in a way that provides the capabilities, not the technology. What capability do you need? Then leverage whatever technology it is to provide that capability that will improve business outcomes and, and drive engagement with your people. So that's the book is not how to do industry for it all. It's how to think about making sure that people, your number one resource, understand the process that you codify and then you use technology where you need to. Because I've seen a lot of companies go out there and spend millions and millions of dollars on big data lakes or, you know, even I even had a customer one time and said, I got all the data. Just show me how to fix the data so I can predict my quality. It's like, what are you trying? What's the failure mode? Well, I don't know, but I got all the data and I got a data scientist. We got anomalies. I said, okay, you got anomalies, but what are you, what's the failure mode you're trying to predict? So it's, it's, it's a journey on that maturity model. Yeah, I think uh, you made a good point either in the podcast or the book where you talked about there was a time where we were just throwing data scientists at the challenge because that was the in vogue thing to do without really understanding, let's say, the bigger picture behind it. And that's something we try to avoid with any industry 4.0 type of transformation. The best people I've seen are the people that know the process on the shop floor, engage them, involve them in the solution. They'll give you a faster time to value, plus they'll use it. That's a big thing. If they don't use it, you put something in, great. Didn't use it. Don't see the value. You lost. You spent a lot of money and didn't win. Well said. As as we wrap things up, I have to ask you a, f- a couple fun questions before we get out of here. And you referenced your, your nickname, Marty McFly. When did that become a nickname that you started to adopt? To get, give me the story behind that as well. It, it was probably when I was at Caterpillar. I just started understanding like the Aegis weapon system was built really because air warfare got too fast for the speed of the systems we had. So they they built the Aegis weapon system off capabilities. Didn't even have a hull of a ship. Just built a weapon system. Never happened before, right? But that weapon system had the capabilities we needed to overcome you know, the Russian hordes, so to speak. And we won the Cold War because we made the investments and these systems had predictive maintenance algorithms automatically took the man out of the loop where you didn't need them. Not that you don't need them, but have them focus on the by exception stuff. And that's where it started hitting me. I'm like, we've got to get, if we, I've got to rely on a person to do something on the shop floor, enter confirmation, enter quality defect code, anything I have that inception point is a point of failure. And that's what the geniuses that built the Aegis weapon system said, a human can't process a 2D screen with a 3D world fast enough to say this threat's going to get me first compared to this threat, but the right algorithms can. And that's where I really started seeing the opportunity to win. And, you know, it just hit me one day. I said, yeah, that was a pretty brilliant system. We need that playbook in manufacturing. Yeah. And I think it was just like one year off of when Back to the Future was coming out, like 85. I, uh, in that case, do you have a favorite Back to the Future movie out of the trilogy? I think the original one is still the best to me because it really set the, the other ones were, yeah, they started getting pretty corny, but it's usually the, the first ones that are best. Now, Maverick Top Gun was an exception to that. It was a great, you know, sequel movie. But uh, yeah, I think the first one really set a stage in thinking about how, you know, going back, you could really change the future. And, and that's, you know, that's our, our kind of our tagline, challenge the present to change the future. 
at C5 in mind, we really believe in that, that we can have better business outcomes um, with this technology. Yeah, I, uh, I the first is my favorite. I do enjoy the creativity that went into the second movie, weaving the first one into it. It was a lot of fun, but you're right. And, and also, great point on Maverick as well, a superb sequel. You also mentioned one other thing, C5MI. As we wrap up, what's the best way to connect with you and what you and your team do? Yeah, so the f- funny thing is everybody asks what C5MI stands for, and I was a C5I officer on the John F. Kennedy Strike Group, but it stands for Command, Control, Computers, Communication, Collaboration. In the Navy, it stood for intelligent Intelligence. We changed it to Management Insights because we really believe in that. So our website is www.c5mi.com, pretty easy. But, um, you know, we're, we're working really hard right now with the government focusing on live warehouses. We've been focusing on live manufacturing. So we have a lot of different veins of work that, that we work on, but it's really all around, are you using your digital core right? Once you are, we help you on that, you know, maturity model um, to get better business outcomes. And for those listening, I'll have a link to Marty's LinkedIn, where to connect with him, all of that in the show notes. And hey, we've got Marty Groover, the real life Marty McFly of manufacturing. It's been great having you here. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. Hey, Chris, really enjoyed it. Thanks for the uh, opportunity. Cheers. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. As always, if you want to learn more, head to the show notes page. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 152 to be taken straight to this episode. There you can connect with Marty. You can learn more about C5MI. And of course, if you want to pick up a copy of his book, which I highly recommend, Speed of Advance, you can do that there as well. Manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 152. I want to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, ePlan. I also want to say, hey, if you enjoyed this conversation today, leave us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts, over on Spotify. And of course, if you feel like you learned something good from this episode that you want to share, well, hey, share a link to it. LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you want to go. Again, the link to this episode is manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 152 would love to hear what you learned. Make sure to tag us if this conversation has taken place on social media. We'll definitely engage in that discussion as well. With that, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.